You are listening to Season 2 of the Stories of Creative Leadership, a series about creating the conditions for innovation and creative thinking. This series will showcase creative leaders who will inspire you to become better stewards of your most important asset, employee creativity. And now, here are your hosts, Todd Schnick and Tony Vengrove. Good morning and welcome back to episode three of season two of our special edition series, The Stories of Creative Leadership. I am your host, Todd Schnick, joined by my friend and colleague, Tony Vengrove. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. Hey, Todd, my mom used to always say good things come in threes. And on our third episode here, I think we have a real treat for our listeners. Boy, I will uh, second that. Uh, We're very lucky to have spoken with today's guest. But before we go there, Tony, uh, remind the audience about why this series is so important. On the Stories of Creative Leadership, we share what leaders know about leading innovation and fostering a creative culture. So we're trying to move beyond the discourse about the philosophy and all the processes around leading innovation. We want to really uncover what leaders are doing day in and day out to lead the function. So, Tony, we had the pleasure to chat with John Bell, a retired CEO and management consultant and the author of a brand new book, an awesome book called Do Less Better. Tony, why is John Bell up next in the series? I've got to know John through Twitter chats initially, and then I became a fan of his blog writing. And when I found out he was releasing a book, I was really excited. So the book is Do Less Better, The Power of Strategic Sacrifice in a Complex World. And I jumped at the chance to start perusing the book. And once I really got into it, I realized he needed to be on the show. In a nutshell, the book, as you can guess from the title, is all about making strategic sacrifices. And as we all know, we live in a complex world. There's no end in sight on that front. So the book is very timely. He relays the story back from his CEO days up in Canada, Jacobs Souchard, where the business was really, really hurting, and they made a very, very tough decision to divest a huge part focus on one particular aspect in one aspect of the business and just do it extremely well. And John will tell you more about that in the interview. Well, we don't have enough time in this opening segment to go through all the notes I took during our conversation, but he talked about very early on in the conversation about one of the reasons why he had to write this book was the lessons learned from competing against much, much larger organizations with far, far bigger budgets than his and and doing less better enables a smaller organization to compete against that. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the book is really for everyone. So it's not just written with corporate employees in mind and corporate leaders. I think the lessons in this book apply across industries from the big corporations all the way down to solo professionals, all the way down to individuals and families, quite honestly. Well, and I liked how he said, creativity without strategy is like spitting into the wind. There's too many organizations out there trying to do creative work, which is a good thing, but not based in any kind of basic strategy. And that was an important conversation too. Yeah, I think John really comes off as a real refreshing leader, and I'm sure he would have been a great leader to work for. Back when I was working in a corporate innovation function, I really appreciated when he he said, and I really believed him when he said this, is that he really emphatically believed in building an idea company, and he worked really hard to make everybody believe in that 
and really kind of uh, jump over the you know higher bars and and really challenge people to bring their best work and their best creative ideas forward. Well, that was the best part of the conversation was this idea of becoming an idea company. And I agree with you. He would have been the kind of guy that I could have worked for because he said uh, his best strategy to get the pull the best out of his people was when they presented an idea. And he would say to them, he said, that's not good enough. I know that you can do better. And it was said in a loving way to say, yeah, I know you're capable of so much more. And I, and I want you to do that because it's, we're all going to benefit from that. And he said that, that strategy worked nine out of 10 times in getting better work from his people. Yeah. You know, I've had a CEO do that to me and he's right. It worked for me. You know, in the corporate environment, there's a lot of fear and you're trying to not play it safe, but there's a lot of rules and you have finance people talking to you, you have manufacturing people talking to you, you have lawyers talking to you. And sometimes by the time you get up to the C-suite, sometimes you arrive with a presentation that's maybe not pushing the envelope as, as hard as you should. And good leaders will recognize that and kind of challenge you to take it up a notch. Well, and the final thing we talked about, which is something that I think a lot of organizations could benefit from, is the idea that when presented ideas, you don't always have to make a decision. You don't always have to move forward. If if it doesn't work, you don't have to you don't have to accept it. I'm a big fan of that philosophy. And I like to say sometimes the best thing you can do is not make a decision. Sometimes an idea just needs a little bit of time to incubate and time to benefit from discussion, uh, reaching out. And as our guest from last season, Max McEwen might say, uh, benefit from a bigger collective brain that might kind of see things from a different perspective and help you connect the dots. All right, Tony, I think it's uh, best that we get our audience connected to John Bell. So before we do that, how can people learn more about John Bell's book? John's book? Do Less Better, The Power of Strategic Sacrifice in a Complex World. You can go to the website they've built for the book. It's at dolessbetter.ca. And when you visit that site, you'll notice uh, you can download a free chapter and dive, start diving into the book. All right. So that's it from Tony and Todd. We have to take a quick break. But up next, enjoy our conversation with author John Bell. We'll be right back. This program is brought to you by Miles Finch Innovation, LLC, a creative consultancy that is passionate about ideas, imagination, and facilitating a culture of innovation. Miles Finch Innovation helps companies navigate the messy territory of corporate innovation. They're strategic thinking partners who can help you get unstuck and identify creative solutions to your toughest challenges. They also love to train and speak on the subject of creative leadership. Learn more about how they can help you at milesfinchinnovation.com. Miles Finch Innovation. Idea-centric. Strategically driven. Humanly conscious. All right, Todd and Tony, back with you. And as promised, we are now joined by John Bell, retired CEO and the author of a new book, Do Less Better, The Power of Strategic Sacrifice in a Complex World. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you today. Well, we're delighted to have you. Thanks for carving out some very valuable time to join us. Uh, before we dive into our conversation, John, we have a very complex agenda. Take a quick minute, inform the audience a bit about you and your background. Okay. I'm the retired CEO of Jacob Souchard. That's a branded packaged foods company that was actually sold to Kraft back in the 90s. Now, most Americans have never heard of Jacob Souchard. Um, it was mainly a, a European business, but they did have operations in North America. 
But so when I say, um, or I mention some of the brands, such as the Triangular Swiss Chocolate Bar Toblerone, then they say, oh yeah, I know that. But anyway, after the sale to Kraft, I decided to become a management consultant. And I did that until I retired a couple of years ago. But three and a half years ago, I created a website that I titled In the CEO Afterlife. And that became the conduit for my musings on leadership, strategy, marketing, and branding. And of course, some of those musings actually form the foundation of this new book. Well, welcome to the show, John. And I've been a fan of much of your writing, and I was very excited to learn that you published this new great book, which I've read and I absolutely love. And I would love to start the conversation with the book. Mm -hmm. And the moment I opened the book, I smiled because I noticed it's dedicated to those who believe that big ideas trump big budgets. And then as I completed the book, near the end, you made the statement, creativity is the last great bargain in business. And so there's a lot of great nuggets around around creativity. Can you share with the audience how you became such an advocate for ideas and creative thinking? Sure, be glad to. Well, with few exceptions, I have always worked for organizations that were much smaller than the competition. So as a young brand manager, I worked for a health and beauty aids company that was up against giants the likes of Procter & Gamble, Colgate, and Unilever. There wasn't a hope in hell that we could match their spending in advertising and promotion. So our competitive advantage became uh, creativity and nimbleness. And I was fortunate to have a terrific mentor who really showed me the way. And this was the only way to actually survive in that kind of marketing culture. And it was the only way that we could thrive against those giants. And it still is. So, John, you know, I interview a lot of authors who put out the latest marketing book, the latest sales book, and I always ask them the question, did the world really need another book about sales or marketing? And they often have a clever, interesting response to that. But I believe there's not enough literature out there about simplifying. And I love the idea behind that. I mean, I think this is a a significant problem. It's not just about how to compete against someone that's bigger and has a bigger budget, but I think the world, the business world is so darn complex. And and I think most organizations, whether they realize it or not, are making their their world far more complex, which which then stifles creativity and, and other business advantage. I mean, this is a significant problem in the marketplace. Do you agree? I agree totally. And the interesting thing is when I presented this idea to the literary agent, he said to me, well, John, there's, there's a lot of books on focus. I said, yeah, but uh, what's happening? We have less and less focus in this complex world. So he said, well, what would be different about your book than any others? And I said, well, we all understand what focus is, but if you are able to actually sacrifice something, if you're actually able to strategically sacrifice products, projects, even ideas and opportunities and discard them, then you don't have those kinds of things to worry about. One of the examples I like to use is, is let's say we're in a, uh, a 10-category company and we're going to focus on one category only. But then on one of those other categories, uh, there's a product recall. There's a health risk to customers. Where does the management spend their time? Where the problem is? Where do they lose their attention? On the one business that they are supposed to be strategically superior at. So it needs to be reiterated, and I make the point in the book that if simplicity and focus work during my era of business, surely it's going to be even more important now with with the, uh, the amount of clutter that's out there in the marketplace. Absolutely. And there's no end in sight right now, right? <laughs> Sadly, no. And, yeah, yeah. And, and people are trying to absorb more information. And Tony, as you know, from the creative world of advertising, the mind is a very, very busy place. 
It sure is. Just a moment ago, you talked about mentorship and having a great mentor. I'd be curious to understand how you honed your creative leadership skills. Can you tell us a little bit about what behaviors from your perspective leaders should focus more on and what they should stop doing immediately in order to invite more creative thinking and essentially build that innovation culture everybody claims to want? Let me answer the first part of that question, how I honed my creative leadership skills. Firstly, nothing motivates more than success. So when I saw the impact of the big idea, I was inspired to look for the next one. And when I became the leader of the marketing department, I encouraged my team to do the same. But of course, uh, creativity without strategy is as good as fitting into the wind. So defining the strategy was always the first step in the creative process. Strategy and creativity is the winning formula for a company when you don't have the scale and clout of the big multinationals. So I was kind of forced into it. And then when I saw the value of it, and then started to, to believe in my own creative abilities and see the others around me also flourish in this area, it was incredibly motivational. The second point on that is I ensured that I surrounded myself with creative people. So my hiring criteria for marketing people always started with strategy and creativity. And once I was satisfied that the candidate had that, then I moved down the list of the other attributes. And you might find this interesting, Tony, when hiring an advertising agency, I didn't care much for their media or their research capabilities. I wanted their best creative people working on my company's advertising. That's great. Uh, and can you talk a little bit about how would you lead in such a way, whether it was agency or employee, to ensure that you were motivating them to keep their creative thinking muscles active, so to speak? I worshipped creativity. I celebrated it. And I encouraged people to come forward with ideas. And those ideas did not necessarily have to be logical. You know about lateral thinking, no doubt. Mm -hmm. this, this was a concept that uh, oh, a long time ago, a fellow by the name of Edward the Bono came up with, and I actually attended some of his courses. And the whole idea is that a lateral thought does not have to make sense. It just allows you to go somewhere else and explore that idea and develop into, in, into something that eventually, to be implemented, has to be logical. So yes, I worshipped creativity, I celebrated it, rewarded people for it. And eventually, this became the main spike in the company's culture. It was an idea company, and everybody believed it. And it was true. When you don't have deep pockets, and you can't spend as much as your competitor, you better outsmart them. And that means moving faster and moving with uh, better ideas. John, does the idea of strategic sacrifice only apply to the CEO and the C-level, or are there applications to an individual and or someone leading a team? Yeah, that's a good question. And I do address it in the book because it's very easy to just do it at the 30,000 foot corporate strategy level and talk about, you know, what businesses to be in and which markets to pursue. But it definitely applies to every function in the company and all the way down to the to-do list that seems to be getting longer and longer. So for anyone in a company, they need to try to focus on the things that matter most. That is not to say that you can give up certain arduous tasks that, that, that keep the business flowing. But on the other hand, if you've only got 20% of your time for things that matter, work on the two or three that are going to create the greatest impact. And of course, that's the old Pareto principle, 80-20 rule. It's been around a long time too, but not yeah. practiced. You mentioned kind of the word logic before, and I often talk about the strain between creativity and logic in a corporate environment. And my experience Logic can sometimes be the worst mindset to bring into an innovation meeting, especially during the fuzzy front end. So, you know, as a former CEO, 
Can you share with us, how did you learn to judge ideas and give feedback? And how did you know when a spark deserved the chance to be fanned into a flame? Well, I took the view that you should never judge an idea too early. And of course, that addresses the the lateral thought Mm -hmm. idea. And I also say that leaders must celebrate this innovation and creativity. It has to be part of the culture. You have to show it. You have to reward it. And uh, the means to the end is doing less better personally and corporately. It's another way of saying focus, but it's more than that. It's eliminating those things that get in the way. So knowing when there's a, a spark is, isn't easy. But my first reaction, if I was cool to the idea, I'd explore it with the originator immediately to see if we could take it somewhere more interesting. And if not, and of course, it wasn't worth spending a lot of time on. And if the creator agreed, we'd drop it. But there would always be something, or usually something that came out of that discussion. And then that was up to the, the originator of the idea to either take it further and come back or bury it and move on. Now, there's one other factor, and, and there's no way of getting around this. I couldn't help but give more time and attention to the people who continually came up with the best ideas. And those are the ones who had discovered that promised land, you know, the place you really, really want to be to make a difference. It seems to me there's two things going on here in what you just said. One is it's easy to kind of support and nurture the folks that are bring, constantly bringing you good ideas. They understand what the promised land is and they're seeking it. But there's also a very important leadership responsibility that can positively or negatively impact culture if you're not careful. And that is, how do you lead and how do you respond and give feedback when people bring you what you deem to be bad ideas? How do you make sure they, (laughs) you know what I mean? How do you lead and give them feedback? And what should leaders do so that people walk away from the meeting and say, okay, I get why the idea isn't on strategy and I get it. And they walk away not feeling demotivated, but still engaged, still thinking? Well, I always try to do it based on its its strategic impact. And generally, if the idea did not fit the strategy, it wasn't even heard. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even listen to it. And it was the same for a piece of advertising. If it was, we'd look at it, and if it was off strategy, we are not going to judge it for its creativity. Get it back on strategy. So you debate it on a, on a you could debate it on a strategic standpoint, and then you want to debate it on its its ability to make a difference. I would do my best to try to motivate the person to make some adjustment or to drop it. There were times, and I think I used this tool well. I didn't like to do it, but sometimes I said, you know what? It's just not good enough. You can do better. And yeah, that person was ticked, but <laughs> nine out of 10 times, they came back with something better. So, so there you go. <laughs> not popular, but effective. Yeah, well, that's, that's great leadership, though. <laughs> <laughs> it did so, work, yeah. I mean, in, in, the, in the end, it's, w- what does it do for the business? The people I worked with understood that about me, so they didn't take it personally when I said, you know, you can do better. I expect more of you here. I want to shift gears back to the book real quick. I forget what chapter is, but you reference that classic book, The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing, and you make the point in reference to that book that an entire chapter was dedicated to urging brand marketers to avoid gratuitous line extensions. And I think I almost laughed out loud or chuckled when I read that because, you know, I always scratch my head when you walk down the grocery aisle and you see 25 flavors of Jell-O and, or, or fill-in-the-blank brand line. But it, it brings up an interesting problem, especially for executive leaders. And the question is this, how do you manage that kind of tension between 
that more predictable, safe, gratuitous line extension innovation, for example, versus being patient, chasing the bolder, disruptive opportunities. My experience, I was in plenty of environments that when the company really needed to hit volume and earnings, they just dusted off some of those line extensions and took the pipeline and ran. So any advice how to manage the pursuit of the big, bold ideas versus falling into that kind of safe, predictable, reliable, kind of just throw another line extension out there? Well, Tony, that's, that says a lot about the leader. And there are many, many cases, especially in the large multinational companies where people are moved into jobs for a very short period of time. You know, I worked in Canada for a long time and inevitably there would be a CEO from the U.S. who's been, I mean, this happened to Irene Rosenfeld, who was with uh, Kraft, who's now Mm -hmm. CEO of Mondelez. She came up to run Kraft Canada. Well, it's a training ground. She wants to be successful there. So maybe a line extension or a couple of line extensions can make the bottom line. And, you know, then they're off. The way I looked at it is I planned on being there for the long haul. And when that's the case, you really, really fight compromising your strategic principles. In fact, the only time I ever supported gratuitous line extensions was when I was a junior brand manager and I didn't know any better. (laughs) But it's a tactic. It's not a strategy. And it's a non-starter for hitting earnings targets as far as I'm concerned. I think one of the most important things a CEO can do is establish an environment that will not force him or her to compromise their strategic principles. That may be a rainy day accounting reserve. In the book, I mentioned that I had a coupon reserve for such events, and I won't go into the details on it, but it was a rainy day reserve in case things went wrong and we could dip into it and use it to feed the bottom line without compromising the company's strategic principles. John, you talked about in doing less better enables you to be more agile, gives you foresight, enables you to be more adaptable, and provides resilience. How does that do that, and why does that matter to a creative organization? I would classify it really as a specialist company versus a generalist company. So if you're a specialist within the coffee category, how is it possible that your competitor, let's pick one, let's take craft. A management that has coffee, pizzas, cereals, I don't know whether they're still in cereals, but you know, they've got a broad product line. How can that management possibly know more about coffee than another management that only works on coffee? So you work on that one category, you get better at it, your know-how is right up there so that you can make decisions much quicker. For example, I think I mentioned in the book, when there were these frosts in Brazil that got the, uh, the green coffee market on the New York Exchange going through the roof, we knew how to handle that. We'd been through it before. Yes, there were going to be several months of some really, really bad earnings, but we knew how to plan for it and then execute it in the best way possible so that we came out of it much better than our competitor who suddenly faced with, oh my goodness, these prices are going up. We're going to have to increase the price, but when do we do it? Oh, but then we got this other thing to worry about. So let's meet on that next week. Uh Uh-uh. We meet on it today, (laughs) and we usually decide on it today. In fact, I had one executive, he was the VP of uh, manufacturing, and he said, can I make a comment? I said, well, of course you can. He said, why do we always have to take a decision (laughs) in these meetings? I said, well, you know what? I think you got a good point there. Maybe we've pushed it a little too far. (laughs) I hope that answers your question. (laughs) A A little walk down memory lane there for me. (laughs) Well, I love what you just said there because I often find myself saying sometimes the best thing you can do for an idea is not make a decision. Sometimes the idea benefits from 
getting disconnected from that meeting-to-meeting cadence that encourages decision-making. Sometimes you just need to step away and give it some space for others to keep connecting the dots. Well, that's totally true. The number of times I thought something was a great idea, and the next morning, I didn't think it was so good after all. <laughs> so, so yeah, sometimes you do have to step back. And vice versa, of course, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, you mentioned the promised land, and there's another line that jumped out in the book for me is you made the statement, innovation's promised land is miles from the comfort zone. And I just love that. I think it implies leaders have to be comfortable leading into uncharted territory. And so looking back on what you've learned, what's your pep talk to those currently seeking the promised land? So for the leaders in that VP and above leadership position, what's your message to them to in seeking the promised land? I think to address that question properly, one has to look at two scenarios. Let's look at the scenario of an individual in a risk-averse company versus one that that isn't in a risk-averse company. So let's make the assumption you're working in a risk-averse company or one with this clout and scale, and you're going to have to find a way to sell the idea of risk in measured bites. It's going to be very difficult just to sell a lot of risk to these companies because they don't need to take the risk in their own minds. This basically means that if your project is a disaster, if you say, let's take this risk, but it's measurable, even if we fail at it, it's not betting the, the ship here. So you take it in measured bites, and if if it's a disaster, it's still a drop in in the corporate bucket. But if it's successful, ah, this is a toe in the water for accepting the notion of risk for reward. And then you can take it from there, and hopefully word spreads, and senior management becomes a little bit more open to this modus operandi that, yes, we should take some risk, but as long as it's measured, we can calculate the downside of it. Maybe we should do this kind of thing. Now, I'm the first to say that I haven't worked in super big companies, so it would seem to me that it's a very, very difficult thing to do. Now, let's go to my second assumption, is that you don't work for a risk-averse organization. And when that's the case, you can enjoy a culture where the zone of discomfort is actually the norm because you're used to going there a number of times. Yes, there's still discomfort, but you know that's where you have to go to be successful. And so again, you measure the risk. And you read the book, I only bet the farm once. And that was when the company was on the verge of bankruptcy. So it was an all or nothing crapshoot. And that bet worked, it worked big time. And I never looked back and continued to operate that way for the rest of my career. John, I've come to the conclusion that if you're an innovative organization, there just no longer is a comfort zone. We are in a constant state of change and that is, that's the constant now. And I think that's a good thing. And it took me a long time to come to wrap my head around that idea that discomfort is the where you should be in business. Do you agree? I do, but I think you're comfortable with the non-comfort zone because uh, that's you a good know point. that's the way you succeed. So you don't need as much courage to go into it because you've been there before and you've failed before. And you, we accept failure. You know, you can't hit a home run every time, but you've got to be there if you're gonna, going to separate yourself from the rest of the pack. And certainly, and I, and I love this, I mean, I loved competing against bigger companies. I loved competing against giants because they were slow, they were bureaucratic, and they always tried to spend their way out of a problem. What an opportunity. Yeah, you make, and in the book, you reference Chobani yogurt as a great example of that in terms of how Dannon responded to them via price discounting. So let me go back to that previous question and ask from a different perspective. I'll give you some background. Todd and I spoke with Ivy Ross. She describes herself the fearless leader of Google Glass. And we spoke to her last year, and she's a great creative leader. 
and we were talking to her about uh, her success, and she said she would create these little groups without asking permission. She'd create these little think tanks and bring people together and start just brainstorming and solving problems and, and creating these little ecosystems within the big giant hairball, so to speak. And I thought that was it was fascinating uh, to hear her talk about that because I think so many people in corporate America are so concerned, and rightly so, about playing by the rules and following the rules. You know, I asked your perspective for VP and above. What if you're a director and below in an organization? What can folks not in charge do to pursue creative thinking and innovation in an organization? I think that's a great thing she did. And uh, she, she almost created a company within a company. Of course, Google believe <laughs> yeah. in innovation. So she's, she's got all the top management behind her in this mission. I always think it's it's difficult if the leaders don't buy into innovation, that it's always tough for those below them. But if you are that way inclined and you want to slug it out and try to find a way within that kind of corporation, this is a great way to motivate your people. And it's a terrific way to, to uh, motivate yourself to have these little uh, think tanks and sessions. Uh, we had a number of rooms so that people could book these rooms and get together. And I always smiled when I walked by and saw people in there with the charts and drawing circles and doing various things. It was a great thing. But inevitably, I think it's awfully tough for someone who really believes in innovation the way I do, the way you guys do, to work in a large company that really, really doesn't really understand what innovation is. I think it was uh, Mondelez where the VP of innovation talked about bite size being innovative. What? Yeah. Bite size candies? Are you kidding me? <laughs> On the other hand, then we, we have Nestle, which I really admire for being able to come out with that single serve, the Nespresso concept. It took them probably <laughs> five or six years A long, long longer time. than it would an entrepreneurially, an entrepreneurial thinking company. But wow, has it ever paid off? And they did it right. The idea was that instant coffee was the only way you could have one cup at a time, a single serve. And they had Nescafe, the largest brand in the world. It was declining, as was the category. And they said, there's got to be a better way to do it. We were faced with the same problem. We chose not to market instant coffee because we found it to be an inferior way of enjoying coffee. And we were working very, very hard on coming up with a single serve roast coffee. Of course, I got out of the business uh, when Kraft bought the firm and Nestle continued to pursue it and they've enjoyed some handsome dividends. I love that brand. It's also, I think, a great case study because the design around that brand is just exquisite. Terrific uh, design. The old concept of making the money on the software <laughs> <laughs> versus the hardware. Uh, come on. It's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really yeah. It's terrific. Well, John, we want to thank you for being on the show. And we have a tradition of asking our guests at the end to wrap things up with a lightning round. So what we're going to do is we're going to throw each of the seven C's of creative leadership at you. And all you got to do is offer up a short, pithy soundbite about why you think they're so important. Sound good? It sounds great. And I've got to tell you, I love that concept, those seven C's. It's a terrific checklist for anyone who wants to break through with creativity. Well, I appreciate that. Well, let's go. The first one is communication. Okay, this is about vision. The domain that leaders envision must be a better place for their business, their employees, and their customers. But don't stop there. If you are a leader with creative juices, don't be afraid to be the team's player coach. Todd, this is going to be a good one. I can just tell right now. Or if you can order hang this one in the rafters. <laughs> yeah, yes. Okay. The next one is curiosity. Rather than the question why, I prefer why not. Why not establishes a place to go. So when you and your team have proven that you can break through the seemingly impossible, 
there's nothing that can stand in your way. That's great. I'm a big fan of Why Not Too, but that's only because that's my first name spelled backwards. <laughs> <laughs> the next one is creativity. Step one for creative leaders is to create a culture in which big ideas are worshipped. In my business, this was critical because without that culture, we would never have been able to thrive against the big giants. Connecting. When everyone understands that a lateral thought doesn't have to be a logical thought, then there are no bad ideas. So this brings out more ideas from more people, and uh, you get the snowball effect. Culture. When creative leaders establish a creative culture that delivers, you have a team of believers who see the unseen. Change. Uh, ditto my last answer. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, certainly, courage. I think this is another way of saying you don't have to be an entrepreneur, but you have to think like one. Oh, boom. I like that one. I like the uh, snowball effect with connecting. That's that's not a way I've really thought about that before. That, Tony, that, that really spoke to me. Yeah, that was great. You know, it's bringing more and more people into the fold, right? And, and culture is supposed to touch everyone. So if you've got a creative and innovative culture, you better make sure everyone is part of that group. And that includes union employees too. And we had them. Well, John, congratulations on the book, Do Less Better, The Power of Strategic Sacrifice in a Complex World. I don't know how the gurus operate in making their lists of the best business books of the year, but I think this book deserves to be on one of those best books lists for the year. I encourage everybody to go out and get a copy of it. It is just a fantastic read, tons of insights in it. And thanks so much for being a guest on the show, John. Well, thanks for the kind comments, Tony. I've really enjoyed being here today, and I was very much looking forward to it because I knew it was going to be about creativity and innovation. And most of my interviews have been about do less better. We did touch on that, but uh, it was very, very enjoyable for me. And thanks for inspiring me to uh, think about some of the great times of the past. John, before we let you go, how can people get in touch with you should they have questions? And most importantly, where can they get their hands on do less better? Do Less Better, The Power of Strategic Sacrifice in a Complex World is available on all the online retailers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and so on. But I do have a website, www.dolessbetter.ca, and in there, uh, anyone interested can uh, read the introductory chapter and also learn a little bit more about what the book's all about. All right, John Bell, retired CEO and management consultant and the author of Do Less Better, The Power of Strategic Sacrifice in a Complex World. John, again, real pleasure to have you. Thanks for stopping by. Delighted to be here. All right. Well, that wraps this episode. On behalf of our guest, John Bell, my co-host, Tony Vengrove, I am Todd Schnick. Stay tuned for episode four of our special edition series, The Stories of Creative Leadership, coming soon. That's it for today. This is Todd and Tony signing off. <laughs>